I'd like to welcome you as a premium member to this exclusive podcast. Now, as Congressman Schweikert explained in part one of this two-part series, and part one is available on our public site, we face an enormous challenge to reform America's healthcare system. Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security are all projected to run out of money over the next decade. If we attempt to borrow our way out, we'll be adding to the $250,000 of debt that each taxpayer in America already finances, and we'll be burying our children and grandchildren in even more debt. Now, in this exclusive segment, David and I discuss the very real solutions that present themselves if we have the courage to act. Now, David Schweikert is serving his fifth term in the United States Congress for what is now Arizona's first congressional district. If you're just joining us, remember that there is a first segment of this discussion, uh, an extensive segment where David helped define for us the monumental financial challenge fiscal challenge that our nation faces. And I hope that you uh, will take the time to watch segment one even before uh, you launch into this one. But there are rays of hope here. And I know David wants to, us to get into uh, some of the uh, potential uh, things that may happen, uh, that we might make happen, that will uh, help accelerate the growth of our economy and help us face some of these monumental fiscal challenges. I'll remind you that David Schweikert is a high-ranking member of the uh, Ways and Means Committee and that he is chairman of the subcommittee on something, something, Social Security, something. No, well, I now what, have what oversight. Over, oh, you have over, you're so, so the, the beauty oversight. of that is now you cover yeah. all the subjects. Cool, cool, cool. Um, so David's got, uh, he's been around uh, in Congress now. This is his fifth term, um, extensive record of public service in the state of Arizona before he became um, our congressman. So David, again, I want to thank you for being with yeah. us. And, and to David and I have known each other for 35 years. Um, so now let's get down to the good stuff, all right? Because you're an optimistic guy. I mean, I, you know, despite all the all the wonky data that you uh, that you spew, I know that you are also an optimistic guy. You believe in the capabilities I, of this well, country. It's not going to happen teased, automatically. I Pardon? think you once teased me because I'm being 60 years old and having a 11 month old. That's the definition of being pathologically oh, that, optimistic. Yeah, it is. Oh, and my wife's exactly my age. We, you know, so. Wow. Wow. Well, you guys are saints because you have two beautiful, uh, very, very young children. And, um, uh, you know, I have five children now and eight grandchildren, and I'm uh, not a one of them is at home. Congratulations. So, yeah, thank, <laughs> thank you very much. They're all so, great. So, all right. So let's, you, yeah. I appreciate because, you know, in the previous segment, you sort of let us ramble about the scale of the federal debt. Yeah. Um, within that, neither of us even touched on um, the scale of um, pension systems that are dramatically underfunded. Multi-employer yeah. pension systems are dramatically under, individuals' savings under. So so you you have to sort of think through the layers of stressors that are particularly in retirement security in the society right now. Yeah, the, um, uh, and it, it's reminiscent of the uh, defined benefit plan crisis that we saw a lot of in the late 80s and 90s, 
um, when most companies began to switch to defined contribution plans. Mm -hmm. um, yet we cannot get our state, local, uh, large elements of our state and local governments um, to, to bite the bullet and make that switch as well. And the result, and of course, then you've got your unions, your defined benefit um, programs there. They're, they're simply not affordable. And they are false promises to workers to uh, be able to claim that you're going to get X amount of money as a defined benefit, rather than tying it to the contribution that the worker makes. Um, and it's a shame, and that's a big challenge, because there's a cost of conversion um, between, you know, people, for the folks that had been paying into defined benefit, if you start uh, bringing on all the new people on a defined contribution basis, who's going to pay the Ponzi scheme? Because that's what it is. Who's going to pay the Ponzi scheme for the uh, retired worker already? And as you mentioned in our previous segment, what do you have? 1.7 now workers for every or no? Uh, uh, you're at 1.67 fertility rate, so that's our oh, birth okay. rates. Right. But um, at the end of the decade, we the model basically is about two two. Uh, up, there's one model that goes all the way up to 2.3 workers for every retired. Person. So person. functioning, you and your spouse have your own retired person that you're financing. It, at least one. <laughs> at least one. Well, yeah, look, yeah. Um, and, yeah. and why this is important, you know, th these are societal promises. It's part of the social contract. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, so, so the United States, we made contract agreements that that's part of the deal. Right. And then we made it toxic to talk about making the financing work on those deals. It's just this weird absurdity in this society where, you know, I get the crap kicked out of me every election cycle because I'm willing to work on Social Security to save it because I think it's a, mor a moral issue. Um, now much of our work has been on how to revolutionize the cost of health care because health care is by far, it's three quarters of all future borrowing. And particularly when you add in that borrowing and its financing costs. Uh, government paid for healthcare. Government Almost funded healthcare. Almost 70% of American healthcare now comes through government in some fashion. Oh, for God's sake. Oh, well, think God's about sake. it. Medicare, Medicaid, well, Medicare, health services, yeah. VA, state and local and federal employees. Right. I mean, you start to actually think about it um, and, and you start to layer it up and you go, oh, it's obvious. All right. Give me some bright lights, some uh, okay. shining, shining cities on a hill. How are we going to now? There, is, there, there are some things we can do. But here's the moment of reality. You have to sort of do all of them at once for it really to work. And I do not know if... The voting population is ready to hear a story that's this disharmonious to what they believe. It's not shiny, so it's not going to be on cable news or on the blogs or on your Twitter account because it's not someone saying something inflammatory and you can go back and forth and do a meme on it. These are big, complicated, interlocking, but... The math, there is a way where the math actually works. Okay. Um, so if I came to you right now and said, I need a unified theory. Um, I need a revolution in the cost of healthcare. We need economic growth. 
we actually need within that economic growth, one of the pillars is you need to fix the immigration system. You cannot import waves and waves and millions of poverty at the right. same time, not invite high skill populations into your society. It's just, it's crazy, you know, what we do. Um, and then I have a we, whole, I have we'll, a whole podcast on that um, regarding this, uh, our immigration problems and the fact that the left needs a perpetual underclass uh, in order to uh, perpetuate. Is, its, isn't uh, it an amazing agenda. irony that it was only 15, 20 years ago that the left used to accuse us on the right of wanting cheap labor. Right. And they were often the proponents of locking up the border and, you know, limiting immigration. And here we all are these years later. And it's their argument that basically made it clear that when you bring in substantial millions and millions of low skill populations, you crush your working poor in the United States. Oh, you absolutely, you absolutely do. You know, so, I hope. All right, that, let's uh, sort of get to the point. But in we here. can, but yeah, but we can. That's a discussion I'd love to have with you, um, and we'll save it for another day. Uh, the, the that entire demographic situation, the possibility of ultimately having to require that in order to receive anything other than emergency medical care, you must be a U.S. citizen. It, it, it's or oddly enough, like. some of those make a difference, but they're rounding errors. So let's start on healthcare, and we're going to work, and we're going to work through okay, some of the other ahead. things. And I promise you, if I don't make you at least uncomfortable on some of this discussion, I'm obviously not trying hard enough. Um, so let's do some top line. In the first segment, we talked about just how stunningly, you know, how, how stunningly ugly the, the math is. Right. And it's going off the charts and the unwillingness of the political class often to tell their voters the truth. So if I came to you right now and said, um, what's the biggest cost for Medicare? Medicare itself. Well, it turns out diabetes is 31% of all spending related to diabetes in Medicare, not Medicaid. Really? So 31% of all Medicare has an association with diabetes. Okay. 33% of all healthcare over here. And then on top of that, if you add in Alzheimer's, you're actually starting to approach almost 60% of all Medicare spent. Wow. Uh, there's this lie out there, or excuse me, misrepresentation where a lot of folks have to say, well, the most expensive part of Medicare is your last six weeks of life. That's absolutely true for the individual not for the system. You know, it's your basic, those who are actually fairly comfortable doing statistics, it makes perfect sense. 5% of society with multiple chronic conditions is over 50% of all healthcare spending. So what happens if you could disrupt... Say, say, would you say that again? 5% of society, 5% of the U.S. population that has multiple chronic conditions. Right. They use up little over half of all healthcare money. Okay. So you start to see, oh, there's a path. What would happen if a number of these chronic conditions can be either stabilized or cured? Now here's where you soak yourself in kerosene and play with matches. Um, because, you know, and look, there was probably a time that it, you didn't talk about smoking. Hey, I just, I, I just want to make clear, David, 
I don't want anybody watching this to say, oh, David Schweiker just said that the way to solve uh, chronic health conditions is for those people to soak themselves in kerosene and, and light a match. Oh, no, 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 no. You're, you're, I'm the one that's doing that because I'm going to start talking about obesity. Right. I understand. I just want to make, I'm just, no, I no, sometimes look, just look uh, at it. When you're, when you're in a very competitive district like him, someone's going to edit this and throw something out at you. The beauty of it is um, I've been talking about these things for so many years. Most of our voters sort of understand saying, okay, yeah. there goes Schweikert again, talking about disrupting healthcare costs. Right. Um, so we had the, the nation's leading healthcare statistician at a forum I put together a week ago Monday. Okay. Um, and we were invited because we're trying to educate our fellow members on possibilities. And one of the things he said just burned into my memory. There's functionally 4,000 human diseases. Half of them, so 2,000 of them, have direct relationship to obesity. Wow. Yeah. So... We're working on a project for with my joint economic economist, just, just a thought experiment. It turns out it's much more complicated than you think because there was some data sets from a year ago which fascinated us saying the most powerful thing you could do on income inequality is obesity. It, 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 wasn't, it wasn't education. It wasn't fixing racism. I mean, they all have probably an impact. It turned out it was health. The number of those households which have someone who has incredible severe issues with their diabetes or is not able to participate in the labor markets because of things like obesity or kidney failure or you know other issues that come with this. So what would happen if you and I could at least get society or public to understand maybe one of the great moralities is we stop killing ourselves. We stop in, a, in the United States during COVID. We had a, just a, an incredible growth of the number of states that now were, you know, almost half the population, 40% of the population it equals the definition of being obese and the healthcare costs that come with that. So this, remember, this is just one of several things you have to sort of do all at the same time. Right. We're going to do the farm bill later this year. Would it be just toxic to say we really need to maybe grow a lot more types of crops so we don't concentrate on just the, the handful of commodity crops that we do so well? I mean, we, we produce food so efficiently and so cheaply, but to make any money on it, you have to process it, process it, process it. For nutrition support is the EBT card, which is the food stamp replacement, the most moral thing in the world to say, here, have this EBT card, go have a ball, go get onion rings. Is that the same, excuse me, is that, is that the same as SNAP? Um, EBT? It, it part, it, it's part of the hierarchy of nutrition support, yes. Okay. And um, by, SNAP is more than supplemental this is, nutrition this is free, support. Yeah, the, this is welfare. It's a form of welfare. Well, yeah. It, it's, yeah. Uh, let's, well, let's not well, to yeah, it, it is. It is, it, but let's refer to it as nutrition support. Um, so many of us have been playing with the idea of consolidation of it. Okay. And then stop saying, go eat crap. Because we have certain world rules for WIC, Women's and Infant and Children Program. Yeah. Where you can only buy certain things. But the EBT card, you know, go drive by a local jack-in-a-box and you'll see, and I love them. 
It's one of my great sins in life is the Jack and Box onion rings. I like the old version more than the new one. Um, but <laughs> in a society where diabetic re- and, and obesity-related healthcare is consuming us, should we be financing it as a government? Okay, so you're okay. Let me get clear. So you're saying these EBT cards, and I assume the SNAP cards too. You can use them for fast food. I frankly, place, yes. I did. I did not realize that. I thought that it would had to be unprepared. You don't hang food. out at many Jack in the Boxes, do you? No. Well, no. Frankly, I don't. <laughs> frankly, I, I, I don't know. It's one of my great um, sins in life. Um, well, God bless you. Uh, not that but, I didn't. Where I'm going to, with this but, is, if we don't want to get hung up on the on the the micro details. It's more the the theme. All right, stop subsidizing bad eating habits. And, and start subsidizing good eating habits. Instead sure. of that, maybe we should drop off a box of microwavable food three times a week at the house. And yes, that will cost more for that, but the cascade effect is a huge crash in costs in healthcare. The second thing you could do, and these are things you could do right now this year in this budget cycle, um, you've seen these over-the-skin um, blood glucose monitors. There's actually, yeah. I think, um, Samsung and now has it in a watch. Um, Apple, apparently, in two generations, is going to have an Apple Watch that also has blood glucose in it. Um, the ability, if you could stabilize the growth in the pre-diabetic population, um, by the end of the decade, it's hundreds of billions of dollars in savings. The third one, and this is the one that makes people sort of go, hmm, is these GLP-1s, Ozepic, um, some of these new um, that were originally either designed for diabetic populations. Some had a derivative they were thought for weight loss, but to help our morbidly obese populations in Medicare, Medicaid, Indian Health Services, VA, start to manage that. And yes, it, 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 so we're actually building a model of what would be the health benefits, the economic savings, the participation in the economy. Would you gain productivity? The lessening of income inequality because you'd have that ability to come back into the workforce. So we're sort of looking at all the moral cascade. If you did something like that, now what, David? I have to throw the. I have to throw the. Um... Uh, the moral hazard issue out here. We're talking about all these different ways that we can mitigate the damage that people do to themselves by eating too damn much food but and eating the wrong we, food. But we passed the moral hazard Rubicon decades ago when we turned these populations into government paid for populations on their health care. So we can actually say there's a moral hazard here of helping someone get through, you know, lessening that BMI. But do understand, by not lessening it, you're still paying for the healthcare. Yeah, I, yeah. You're yeah, still paying I for know. it. So, so we can, can actually we, have a stand on our principles and still write the check. And there becomes where's the, the stick? problem. Where's the stick? I hear the carrot, okay? All Where's the stick for not taking care of yourself? The stick is not dying. I mean, if there's a path um, to not, you know, to staying healthy. The fourth one is the ultimate incentive. And that is, um, that, she sorry, doing I today? have a se- uh, seven-year-old who's come to say hi. Well, say uh, hi. Say hello, Olivia, and then you 
Hi. Olivia. Okay, go back. Go go back outside. <laughs> okay. Um, and this one is sort of um, a disruptive thought. There's multiple phase ones apparently happening right now of a stem cell therapy that does not require uh, anti-rejection drugs, meaning it, you can do it in a, what's called a biofoundry. So it's a cure for everyone. And it's a stem cell that would make, make it so your islet cells, which produce insulin, could be replenished. So the basic math set we're dealing with today is if someone has type 2 diabetes, we, we have a data set that says about if you could get your weight back down, about 70% of those folks, their bodies will start to produce insulin again. Okay. okay. We have 30% where their bodies don't. We may, by the end of the decade, have a way to cure them too. I despise part of this conversation because it feels very big government to me. Yeah. But at the same time, we're paying for it. And the math looks like it disrupts dramatically. I mean, we're talking trillions of dollars because we expect, um, remember, healthcare at the end of the decade, you know, for, for governments and other things, it's, you know, I think predicted to be like $7 trillion. Um, so any disruption there, but that's just, that's sort of the first tier. Okay. A dramatic change in, um, you know, obesity, diabetic type health um, diseases. Then with that is you're also now chasing either through um, cleaning up some of the uh, way the FDA uses data to bring cures to market dramatically faster. We now have a one-shot cure for hemophilia, one of the most expensive diseases in, in, on earth. Um, there is a model that says by bringing as lots and lots of competition of lots and lots of cures are stabilizations. That 5% that's over 50% of all, so our 5% of the population that's over 50% of the spending, by the end of the decade, you could actually be truly starting to bend that over. It just requires dramatically different thinking in Congress. Um, like what? Like what? Um, most don't see the path to lessening spending through stabilizing people's diseases and curing them. Uh, for my brothers and sisters on the left, for my Democrat colleagues, they often see these as, well, they could get more votes and more love in their electorate by coming in and regulating those pharma companies or those um, biological research companies are limiting what they can charge on, on a drug, which basically means the development of the cures goes away. Yeah. yeah. But that's, but understand, um, saying we're going to, you know, we're going to stop these high priced drugs is great politics. Even the Democrats own model um, with CBO and others says, oh, by the end of the decade, a lot more people are still dying because the cures didn't show up. And it's this, some of this is really within only the last 18 months, two years, we had some major breakthroughs on how to do things, whether it be medically or in Congress. Or, um, excuse me. Okay. Uh, medically. I, medically. I didn't think, I didn't think you were referring to how Congress did things. No, no. Congress is accessible. Um, but it's, so there is optimism there. So, so that's one. And if healthcare is the prime dominant driver of U.S. debt, going at it with everything you have, 
going at those drivers of those healthcare costs. There, so that's just one pillar. Then over here, you're doing things of. All right, David. I want to, I want to clarify clearly. Enhancing, not limiting competition among the developers oh, of these drugs oh, you will go to dramatically crazy. decrease the cost of yeah uh, healthcare. Um, and 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 we have a whole thing where we walk through because there's also some major changes of technology on how you can even manufacture. There's now 3D printers that can print small molecule drugs. I you didn't no know that. A, really, no longer need a hundred million dollar clean building. You can now have a much smaller one and lines of super high-speed 3D printers where you put in cartridges and you make different pharmaceuticals. And so in the next few years, you're going to see interesting occasions where the benefit manager, the PBM, the drugstore, the hospital network are making their own pharmaceuticals. Wow. So so think you got, I think. And so so is the drug dealer. And so is the drug dealer. Excuse me? And so is the drug dealer. Oh, they're already doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's I hope, mean, uh, remember, yeah, modern no, drugs I, now are no longer plant-based. They're synthetic, which yeah. is also a whole other societal. And issue. We, if, you, if you want to ever do a discussion about drugs, homelessness, uh, meth, fentanyl, and the effects that's happening on our communities, some of the numbers will just rip your heart out. Yeah, I'd, I'd like, to, I'd like and, us to and, do and there that, are David. Actually, I really would. But, but some of the smartest people I know in the subject area are going through a mental rev- revolution because these drugs are so powerful, so addictive, so mind-altering. It's not the old days where someone was using a plant-based opioid and when they came back off, they could think again. Yeah, um, This almost wipes out cognitive abilities. Right. And, yeah. and so it's going to take a very different approach. But that's, that's a non sequitur from where we're talking about right now. Um. So, but so I'm, but I'm making a note. I'm making a note. David drugs. Yeah, thank that's, you. That's our next yeah. discussion. Remember, <laughs> as you as you know, the my idiosyncrasy. I've never been intoxicated. I've I've I don't I've right. never drank because I come right. from a long line of people in twelve step programs. But that that's a different aside. Um. All right. Labor force. How do you create incentives that if older workers want to stay in the labor force? They're not pounded with taxes or reductions on their benefits. Yes. Simple. There's simple math that, to do that. And that was actually going to be part of our social security solution. Um, then you and I sort of t- touched on things you would do in immigration where you have to have a high skill. Now, high skill could be a skilled carpenter or a physicist, but it's, it's those things that grow the society where you have shortages that cannot be replaced domestically. Um, other things within that labor force, um, we're functionally missing about three and a half million prime age young male or prime age males. Our math says number one is actually obesity. Number two, drug use. Right. Number three, you know, um, then you start to look at the death counts. Um, it's the same hierarchy. Um, suicide, suicide yeah. car accidents. Yeah. Um, and then you get down at even gun violence. But the fact of the matter is you're missing in a society where you're desperate for workers. Um, and, and there's more going on here. Um, there's something in family formation. One of the reasons we calculate that fertility, you know, the number of children in America has collapsed, 
is we see some terrifying numbers of males and females entering universities almost identically. And in some programs, females graduating, not exactly, but almost double the rate of males. The dropout rate of young men is devastating. Mm -hmm. And within that, you start to say, okay, so the young woman now has gotten her bachelor's or master's. Is she going to marry someone who dropped out? And so we actually can see the data. And, and th this isn't my vision of, of a personal opinion. This is in the data. Family formation has slowed up dramatically because of that separation of hierarchy, you know, of education, of incomes, and those things. Right. So you start to realize if I need productivity in my population, I'm going to have to deal with some of these other social issues also at the well, same you're, now, time. Now we could, we could also easily do an hour on the war on boys um, and, it, and how it's beginning to manifest itself in those dropout rates, in the, the lack of promise-keeping men um, who assume uh, a traditional role uh, in a conventional family. Um, it's for, for us on the economic side, some of it's a little more complicated because we, we really have some trouble. Um, we have one economist who believes um, uh, the hyper, hyperactivity meds that many of these kids were given yeah. made it so they don't deal with stressors. You know, let's be honest, uh, yeah. part of going to university, you went to law school, um, is can you handle the stress? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and those things. And what happens if you have folks who have been, were medicated during parts that are their youth so that they haven't built the, the stress managing skills. I don't speaking know. Of, speaking of stress, just for the record, I went to law school after I went to Vietnam. Yes. So it, it, and I you was have not a, and most people I, don't know, you have a purple heart. I do. Yes. Lucky me. Um, my point is that, um, it, comparatively, Law school was not particularly stressful. <laughs> but, but, but think about what you're saying, though. And, and look, uh, in some ways, that's not my area of specialty. There's, there will be some folks who will be very smart at this. All I can tell you is I have a labor participation. So when you see the labor participation numbers posted yeah. up by Bureau of Labor Statistics, they're misleading because that's the numbers of those who are looking Oh, right. Not, not what, even the ones it's that are not right. a total population data. That's if you look exactly at the total right. population data, it's devastating how right. many of how much of our population is not participating. Yeah, so, I, I constantly made that point for years and years on our finance show on KFYI radio back in Phoenix, that the unemployment rate is deceptive because it only measures the percentage of people who are actually looking who cannot find work. Yeah, and, and if right. anyone ever who's watching this, if, if you're inherently a geek like we are, um, go look at the BLS data for unemployment and then go look at the household survey data for unemployment, and there's this stunning difference. Right. And we're still right. trying to figure out how to reconcile those two. So for those who are interested in math. Um, so, okay, so we had a revolution in healthcare. A... Society that values, loves, and incentivizes participation in the labor market, whether it be older workers getting sort of that spiff where maybe they they don't have to pay their portion of FICA. Because well, what would you, okay, yeah, I was just going to say, so specifically to enhance, to make it uh, 
more viable for older workers to stay in the workforce? At a certain age, you no longer pay FICA, um, for example? Yeah, and we did, we've done some math. We're saying, okay, yeah. the employer will pay their half. You won't pay your half or th things like that. And we already see countries like Japan experimenting with things like this yeah. to keep folks who want to. This is purely optional. Want right. to stay in the labor market. Well, the uh, irony, the irony, look, you know, I'm older than you are, you know, and I keep paying Social Security tax on my on my income while I get my Social Security check. And you just is, go, come certain, on, man, yeah. at a point, give me a break. Well, but, and, and I, the break. Has I know to I'm one, lucky. I'm lucky. Yeah. But at some point, it's all math. For, and I, I know I'm sounding cold, but I got to make the math work. The math at the I, end of the day will win. I understand. All right. So so we have a whole cascade of things from fixing parts of immigration to the incentives to actually finding a way to get um you know our young people, you know, back into society. It means also doing some very uncomfortable stuff in regards to illegal narcotics in society, other things. But you got to do it all. You got to do it quickly and you can't continue to have the almost the bedwetting type of arguments that the political class has as they're pandering to one group or another, because you got to see it as a unified theory. Um, then you go into the bureaucracy. The scale of the United States bureaucracy is overwhelming. Um, the ability to get a permit to do something. There, there, there's great opportunities out there to functionally automate much of what you think is, is government. And um, if someone immediately, their first words were, what about all the unemployment? Trust me, you have a society that desperately needs workers. They just don't need them in a taxpayer paid um, position. Position, right. I, I could give you, I'll, I'll give you just a, a thought experiment. And I actually have a YouTube video out there where I did this a couple years ago. Um, and, and, but this is, could be scaled everything from financial markets to others. Um, for those of us who we live in the Phoenix area, um, you want to open a business. You have to go down to the county, get an air quality permit. Then you have to have your, you know, your air quality. Your if you're let's you're painting cars or painting motorcycles, you have to have someone come review your scrubbers. You have to get the engineer to come stamp them every year. The fact of the matter is, if you took a couple, a few thousand people in our market, and gave them the little sensors. There's these things that you can t pin to your lapel, attach to your phone. They do air quality samples. You crowdsource the data. No, seriously, think about this. Yeah. You would have living data that if there's clowns over here painting cars in their backyard or the motorcycle paint shop over here um, didn't replace the filters on their scrubbers, you would catch them almost immediately. Do file cabinets full of paperwork actually make the air quality cleaner? No, of course not. Um, are these towers that we put up around the Maricopa County that cost a million dollars a year to maintain, do they make air quality cleaner? No, they, they tell you something's wrong, but it's for, you know, several hundred thousand people. When you could have a little device on a phone or, or on a lapel. And, and, and you start to think about and the complaint I've had is, well, you're going to unemploy all these people at the air quality office because they're no longer putting paper in file cabinets. They're Good. now driving probably Good. their hydrogen-powered little vehicle to where the sensors said there's a problem and helping those people fix the problem. But there's an entire consulting industry out there 
that goes around to those businesses and gets right. money and stamps. And there's where my argument of the disruption is the battle because they have armies of lobbyists to stop ideas like this. But this idea of using data as your regulator works for financial markets. It works for air quality. It works for water quality. It works for so many things around us where you don't need buildings full of people doing a 1938 regulatory model where you fill out a form, you get your permit, you fill out your compliance form, you get your new renewal right. of your permit, you pay a fee. When we could be collecting data 24 hours a day, seven days a week, knowing if people are in compliance. It's a dramatically more efficient society. And what we're talking about here, just so we're bringing everybody up to speed, is how we can accelerate the growth of our economy uh, because it's got to grow faster than the 1.7, 1.8% projected yeah. rate of growth. Particularly when uh, you consider debt is projected to be around the CDO yeah. model is 7.5% yeah, of the right, we, entire economy. at the, We cannot spend our way out of it. We cannot tax our way out of it. We have to grow our way out of it. This economy has to get much bigger. And you got to cut and grow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let me ask you this then. You put your geek hat on for me. And I know you love this kind of stuff. Two, three technologies that you think are going to be the game changers for accelerating growth. Stem cell, AI. Um, and well, AI, excuse me, but AI is so broad. Um, yeah. Uh, the reason I do AI, because I, I can give you like a simple example and then go to something that's much broader. Okay. Um, like uh, I have oversight over the IRS. Working with them saying, instead of going out and hiring 80,000 new employees on the customer service side, you could actually put something there where you could call and you're saying, I need help on this form. And the chat AI walks you through how to fill it out. Right. Sends you a text message so you can hit, so you can watch a video on filling out the form. And you can, it's happy to stay on with you on the phone for a half an hour, if that's how long it takes, where you can't hire enough people to do jobs like that. Right. Right. That, that costs dramatically less and actually reduces a whole lot of misery in society. Yeah. You yeah. know, the, the flip side of that is we're all tired of talking to um, bots on the telephone but, or but hearing this, recorded the, voices. The new stuff but AI is, is different. Yeah. The new stuff is so good. Hell, you could even say, I want the person to have a British accent. I mean, I want right. them to sound like my grandma. I mean, right. seriously, it really is almost that creepy. Oh, I, I know. And, and you may not know this, David, but you're not really talking to me. You're talking to my, <laughs> my AI bot, Actually, my better, my better looking AI bot. Yeah. You laugh about that. Um, we've actually had some presentations in Washington of how <laughs> good we're, we're being told to be ready for this for the next election cycle, where fake stuff is popping up looking like us. Oh, oh, I yeah. can believe it. I could, yeah, but, I can believe it. Well, I, I, I have a, I have a suspicion that they've already mastered that with respect to Joe Biden. Uh, uh, right. <laughs> Look, you, know, you may, you may be right, but um, even to. And, and this was going to be one of the other pillars we were going to talk about. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's tie this in right now. If I came to you right now and said, hey, Keith, um, here's something you can have in your home medicine cabinet. It looks like a big kazoo. You blow into it, and it instantly will tell you if the flu, instantly bounce off your medical records, 
um, instantly order your antiviral and Lyft or Uber will come drop it off at your house in two hours. That's wonderful, right? Right. It's illegal. Right. Right. I, I understand. Yeah, it's practicing medicine without but, a license. But, but, but right. we already know that there's already actually some of that already legal in our society today, but we don't, if you know someone with a diabetic pump, right? that's actually a, functionally an algorithm dosing them. Well, do you remember the, when, when, when Apple first came out with its phone and it was going to read your pulse, so that's about yeah. all it could do? They said, oh no, that's practicing medicine without, that's, that's a medical device and it has to be specially licensed. So obviously inroads are being made. Uh, Slowly. Where, yeah, but now you have slowly. to take on state licensing, you know, is yeah. in um, a certified, highly accurate sensor, write a script. Can the pharmacy fill it? Can um, a delivery service deliver it to your house? The fact of the matter is, um, can it be reimbursed by CMS? Social Security Act says you will see a doctor. Is the avatar on your phone a doctor if you now have the thing on your wrist that does your blood glucose, your temperature, your pulse rate, and it has the data from your last 96 hours? Right. And you say, I don't feel well, uh, and you hit your telehealth on your phone, but the thing you're talking to is actually an AI avatar walking you through saying, hey, we just analyzed your last 96 hours of data on your body. Here's what the statistics say is happening with you. That's a combination of revolutionizing the cost of healthcare, but using this technology revolution that's, that's already pretty much here. My job is how do I legalize it? Yeah. And then how do you take on the army of lobbyists who are there to destroy that idea? Your position on the oversight committee um, where, where do you have the most leverage um, as chairman of oversight or uh, in some other capacity to make some, changes like this, do you suppose? Um, in some ways, it's a combination of oversight sort of showing where um, bad acts are happening, where government is dramatically overpaying for things are incredibly inefficient. And... Remember, Washington, D.C. is about the money. Right. It's a protection racket. It's to protect incumbent bureaucracies, incumbent charities, incumbent businesses. And they fill up the hallways with people who will come in and say, we're not here to beg of you to cut spending or find a new efficient way to put us out of business, but it's better and healthier and cheaper for society. Um, we want you to leave us alone and just give us more money. And there becomes the beginning of this conversation where I said, my biggest barrier is I need the public to demand, to want the change. Because elected officials are functionally reflections of their constituents. I'm just blessed to have freaky smart constituents. Uh, but most people don't have an urban, suburban, you know, as a conservative Republican like right. I do. Right. So I, I have a unique population I represent. But... Where I'm walking through, and you see there's a theme here. It's make people's lives easier, make the services they get cheaper, more accurate, friendlier, easier to access. And it turns out that whole circle, I can crash the price of government, its cost. I can crash the price of healthcare. 
And you often get the typical Republican or even Democrat says, well, price transparency, it makes a difference by only about 1%. Because if you have a third-party payer model, and my economists will say, well, if you get rid of the third-party payer model, you get much more price efficiency. Sure. Can never get the votes for that. You know, if you're going to be able to wipe out insurance as we know it and Medicare and Medicaid, it's never going to happen. So you also have to come up with a plan. And that's what's so elegant about sort of our unified theory that we've been putting out is it's also something it could pass. Uh, Even a number of my Democrats, um, the less crazy ones, are actually pretty comfortable with a lot of these ideas. They just like on that one I just talked about of modernizing telehealth. Right. He loves it. He wants it. He just, as he says, he can never be seen on video advocating it because the (laughs) nurses union in his district are incredibly powerful and they helped him get elected. Remember, at some point, I got to get the votes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what we focused on in this second segment, um, David, has been on ways we can drive down the increase in health care costs, which is the primary right. driver. And the of, cost of government. And the cost of government overall. And productivity. Right. And economic growth. And then there's some other parts of the unified theory. We need a some different ways we manage U.S. debt. Or This is one you and, and your clients would find interesting. Um, the concept of taking a portion of U.S. debt and putting it out either on a perpetual horizon type bond or a type of bond that is actually tied to the economy. And uh, it's a little it's a radical idea but the math is good. If you took maybe 20% of US sovereign debt and let's say tomorrow you put it out on a bond uh, that actually acts more as a proxy for the economy. So when the economy's good and there's lots of tax revenues, you're actually getting a spiff. When the economy goes into a slowdown, you actually get paid less. And therefore, it it acts in sympathy with the economy um, it's, uh, and, and uh, it's, it's fascinating. Fascinating idea, David. It bumps up against um, uh, a convertible bond or a convertible. In some ways, um, that's actually preferred, where the, the a preferred share. Is. And so you're converting it's basically it to equity. An equity interest you're selling, in the yeah, you're, you're you're selling a piece. You're selling an equity interest. That's what I was going to say. It's, it's, yeah, an look, equity I, I, interest I, I, in the United States of America. I'm not sure I'm entirely comfortable with that, but I but, understand that it could be. I'd probably invest in that. It'd probably be pretty good. And and one of the reasons is some of us are terrified of a black swan, a right. failed bond auction a sudden spike. Remember, it's not only the $2 trillion that will be functionally issued in this 12-month cycle of new spending, new borrowing. Right, new debt. We have a, what, what you would understand this, a weighted daily average of U.S. sovereign debt. I think we're out, and this has actually gone out on the curve, about 66 months. So functionally, every five years, half the existing U.S. debt had to be refinanced. Right. And that's actually what's crushing us right now is how much of the because bond the rates are higher. debt yeah. is coming because back in for refinance. Right. Refinance. Right. So you're issuing $2 trillion new, but you have several trillion that's functionally being refinanced. 
you know, in, in fairly yeah. short order. If there were ever um, a sudden military conflict, another pandemic, something horrible happened, or just financial markets got woozy, um, and you had that sudden spike, if you, you, you know, you're standing there at the window having to put out how many tr you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of bonds that day, um, and if you had a failed bond auction, you know, the $26 trillion that's out there and publicly held, what happens to its value? If interest rates spike up, this stuff all crashes. Right, right. So the, it's very much, it's very Taleb-ish, if you're a follower of the guy who wrote Anti-Fragile, which, you know, um, is what could we do going longer on the curve and making us less subject to that sort of inflection? So it, this is the financing part. Right. Um, and there's a handful of ideas we have on stabilizing um, the cost of U.S. financing of debt and making it so if something went south on us, um, it doesn't blow up uh, our portfolio. This, how, how does um, – and, of course, when you start talking about how do we restructure the debt, it sounds a little bit like how do we rearrange – the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. It's I, the one of the most el creative ways I can describe it is think of it. It's 2008. Why did GM need a government bailout and Ford did not? Yeah. Ford had refinanced its debt a couple of years earlier and gone much longer out in the curve. Right. GM was very short on its debt. They were being able to finance a little bit cheaper but, you know, every six months, every 12 months, every 14 months, they, they had to refinance. Right. When they crashed and there was no availability of capital, they had to come to government to be bailed out. Ford did not. Ford right. was willing to pay a little bit more, but to have stable financing. Well, and in the irony, ways, that's the world the, we look at. And the irony right now, as you know, in our inverted um, bond markets. Yeah, are way out of the better, curve. You're better off to go way out on the curve. Right. And and uh, that's part of my passion. Could you imagine if pre-COVID, um, and this is one of the things, because I've been having this fight all the way since Treasurer Lou, of go out on the curve, go out on the curve, go out on the curve. Because remember, much of what we're talking about is getting through baby boomers. Right. And this is a horrible way to think about it, but I'm one of those baby boomers. So we're going to be here on Earth for about another 40 years. From your lips to God's ears. But after that, <laughs> we actually demographically were probably a lower populated country. But at least the demographic populations are more stable instead, of this, instead of this lower, big bump. Uh, yeah, I hear what you're and, saying. And uh, so, yeah. so this is purely debt and demographic management. Of mm. We need to get through you know, this spike in our population, which is going to use... You know, trillion, you know, just eighty some trillion dollars of borrowed Medicare right. money. Called, call to action. I want to give David Schweiker an opportunity for a call to action here. Um, what specifically is the is the key takeaway from this two part discussion that we've had, where you've articulated the driving force behind our debt is going to be related to healthcare. Um, um, my, call, we have my call, my call, healthcare growth. Population stability. Right. Um, my call to action is actually a little weird. It's not pick up the phone and start screaming at your member of Congress. 
It's actually more um, learn the facts. Um, read, read, you know, the, some of the smart people in the Wall Street Journal's editorial or the Economist magazine or these things. We live in a society where we go home and we often turn on cable television because we want the reaffirmation of we're angry and there's going to be people on the television angry with us. But it's the shiny object of the week. It's the stupid picture on a beer can. Or it's someone over here that said something insane and tried to raise money on it. Okay, be angry about those things. But those things don't wipe out your republic. The debt will. And so my call to action is, how do you convince the public to do very complex things very fast when a lot of these are ideas that they've never even heard of? Mm. It's called leadership, David. And you're, and you're exemplary, and you're, you are demonstrating it right now. We do our best. You do great. You do great. Look, I've got to let you go. I've taken two hours of your time. Um, Joyce has got to not, I'm, I have to not be on her favorite person list. She, right no, now. she has a long list. She actually has just pinned on the side of the door over here a long list of chores I will be doing in moments. So you'd rather talk to me. Yeah, you're a little, yeah. <laughs> well, considering the first chore is cleaning up after the dogs on the lawn, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> David, I love you, man. It's great to talk to you. It's great to see your smiling face. And um, we will darken your door again because you have so much to share, so many great insights. Uh, I thank you to for being a dedicated public servant. You work your butt off, and um, and you've earned the respect of a lot of people, including your friend you. here. And Thank I wish you. you wonderful things. Thank you. Back at you, buddy. Bye See now. you later. Bye-bye.